Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 27 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe, which this week on Monday, I was featured on the front page for the Mandolin Monday segment. So thank you so much to David Benedict for having me on there, and thank you so much to Scott and everybody over at The Mandolin Cafe for everything they do every day. So if you didn't get a chance to check it out, I think you can you can find it on my Facebook or Instagram or YouTube. I'll have a link to it. I'll put a link to it on mandolinsbeer.com. How's that sound? This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors. They have beginning mandolin and intermediate mandolin with Sharon Gilchrist. Bluegrass Mandolin and Jam Favorites and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh. Monroe-style Mandolin with Mike Compton. Melodic Mandolin with John Reichman. Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein. Irish Mandolin with Marla Fibish. And Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now Get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's all one word, MANDOLINBEER at checkout. So thank you so much to Peghead Nation. And thank you to everybody who's always listening. I really, really appreciate the support. Again, you can always support the podcast for free by just hitting subscribe on whatever platform you are using, going to the iTunes podcast app and leaving a quick review and a rating. That's always helpful, of course. You can always support me. You can go to my Patreon page. I have two levels. If you just want to support the podcast, it's $4 a month. And um, if you want to go to the next level, it's $8 a month. And I've been posting every week. I've been posting 10-minute-a-day videos and tabs as well so that you can go there. And if you're looking for some new things to work on, I try to base them around the episode that is the current week. And in this week, this is one of my favorite ones, is um, Andrew talks about the uh, five shapes for double stops that he was taught that help him kind of open up the fingerboard. And so I'm going to teach you those five shapes on Patreon. That'll be up no later than Friday. And um, so you can go there as well. You can also go to mandolinsandbeer.com and you can uh, buy shirts, hats, stickers, and koozies. You can also go to the Spotify playlist, Mandolins of Beer Spotify playlist. It's a great update this week with the songs that are featured in this episode. And again, this guest... Andrew Marlin from Mandolin Orange and also has that incredible solo album, Buried in a Cape. So let's get into it, everybody. Hope you guys have yourselves a great week. Next week is Andrew Collins. Cheers, y'all. All right, now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Andrew Marlin. Andrew, how you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks great. for having me. Oh, my gosh, thank you. Um, you are, I had mentioned this in a in a message to you, but I get emails uh, almost daily of people talking about the podcast or who have listened to the podcast, and your name is definitely at the top of the list that people want to, to hear an interview with, so thank you for doing it. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, I know you're super busy. Um, you're, you just mentioned you're getting ready to head out on tour tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah hitting the road. Uh, I think we have to fly out around 11 o'clock tomorrow. Oh my goodness. So yeah, so I really appreciate I really appreciate you uh taking the time here for sure. And you've got um just looking at your tour dates here for 2020, you've got some pretty uh some pretty sweet gigs. I'm from Michigan originally, so the Ann Arbor Folk Festival is always a great time. Yeah, that was uh that's when we I can't remember the last time we 
did that. I want to say it was like three years ago, but uh, I love how it's just in a beautiful auditorium and, uh, you know, everyone gets like a 20 minute slot. And so uh, I think that's great for the audience as well. You know, nobody gets worn out by super long set. You (laughs) kind of get out there and you play the hits and you get off stage. Yeah, that's going to be that's got to be eventually getting pretty tough for you guys to just pick 20 minutes of. I mean, you have some pretty incredible albums and some incredible tunes. So good problem to have. <laughs> yeah. Cause we also, like, I mean, we like to keep our set short just because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of our material is so heavy that, uh, I feel like once you start getting into the hour and a half range, people are just starting to, you know, <laughs> they, they need some, uh, they need a break from all the heaviness, you know? So, uh, <laughs> right. but it is, it is harder and harder to choose what songs are going to actually go in a set. Um, just because, like you say, we've got so many albums now. Right, right. And then you got the Caverns coming up. You have Del Fest, the Savannah Music Festival, um, Bonnaroo. That's, a, that's yeah. a big one. That's great. Yeah, also looking forward to getting back to Telluride this year. Um, that's one of our favorites. And, you know, I think for that one, more so than most festivals, um, you just get to hang out with your heroes backstage, you know, and, and it's not some weird sectioned off thing where you know like these artists can go here these artists can go here it's it's just anyone can just walk up to anybody and take a picture or you know sit down and pick a tune and that i think that festival is great for that yeah yeah and they have that really cool the um the the little is it elk park stage that little side stage where they do even smaller things or you know you yep. can just walk up to guys like sam or you know, somebody somebody might be doing a banjo clinic, or it's it's amazing. Yeah, we watched uh, last time we were there. I watched Brian Sutton do a guitar workshop. You oh. know, just him and a guitar, and that was incredible. No kidding, that's amazing. Yeah, he's so good. And then you're doing an um, you've already you played the Ryman last year, but you got two more nights coming up to the Ryman. And to me, you guys are made for the Ryman Auditorium. I mean, mm-hmm. it just seems to make sense. You know, what the perfect venue? How was it to play that the first time? It, it definitely felt like all these other venues we've played, you know, it's, uh, we always want it to sound a certain way, you know, it's like we wanted to have a nice roominess so that some of the notes, you can just play one note and it just seems to echo around the room. But, um, the rhyming is, is one where all of that just clicked and lined up into one place where, you know, it felt great singing in there. It felt great playing in there. I feel like with the way the audience is positioned, they feel close, but you're still able to get a lot of people in there. It's, yeah, it's basically the perfect venue for anybody playing acoustic music. Well, congratulations for uh, doing that, and then two nights. So that's that's amazing. Good for you guys, man. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, oddly enough, I think, and I, and I my memory could be serving me incorrectly, but I moved to Charleston in 2009, and I'm almost positive I saw y'all play at a small venue here called Alanda Green in like 2009 yeah. or 2010. Would have been the yeah, first I time that. I saw that you. Was, uh, we were four piece back then. Actually, we had a, a drummer and a bass player, yeah. but uh, Josh wasn't playing with us yet. Yeah, that's right. Well, cool. At least I know I'm not going crazy. I'm like, I know. Nope. <laughs> so, <laughs> I I love that place. I try to play there at least once a year. Eddie, who runs it, does a great job. Yeah, he does do a great job. I hadn't seen him in a while, but uh, yeah, and I think uh, we've done a few shows that he's promoted um, in that area too. So cool. Yeah. yeah, he's a good guy and a great dentist. <laughs> oh, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, a uh, little known fact, you know, they have those uh, dentists have this the fake tooth uh, kind of like liquid substance that when you you hit it with UV light, it like 
all of a sudden just hardens to uh, like as hard as pearl basically and uh -huh. so that's what they they'll do on, to fix some places on your teeth if you feel like you chip a tooth and uh, a buddy of mine had his original tuners on his lure and one of the tuners had broke and uh one of the pearl buttons so he went to his buddy who was a dentist and got him to actually fix the pearl button using that stuff right there and it's held ever since so Holy cow. So if you have a, a lure with original tuners, just friend the dentist. <laughs> uh, Nash Nashville dentist phones are going to start ringing like <laughs> real exactly. quick here. So, oh man. So what got you into mandolin? Um, What did get me into mandolin? I guess I, I kind of credit that uh, Skaggs and Rice album. My heart is sad and I am lonely For the only one I love When shall I see her? Oh, no, never Till we meet in heaven above Oh, bury me beneath the willow Under the weeping willow with getting me into the mandolin first because I was already a big guitar fan and like starting to listen to more and more Tony Rice but something about that record the way Skaggs is just playing the melodies and the way they're singing together I just fell in love with the role that Skaggs played on that album and uh yeah I just wanted to learn all of those licks just turnarounds and uh old double stop licks that he was hitting yeah yeah that's a classic so what did yeah. you did you pick it up late in life or did you pick it up young? I, I didn't pick up the mandolin until I think I was twenty years old. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, I was uh always kind of a finger picker on the guitar and mm -hmm. um, went through a brief metal spell. So I was also playing some heavier music and then uh, yeah, when I was twenty, I latched onto the mandolin and you know progressively got better mandolins over the years, but uh. But yeah, and just trying trying to figure out as much as possible. So, mm -hmm. did you have like a local guy that you took lessons from or anything like that? Just you teach yourself? Yeah, not I taught myself. But uh, the one one thing that really pushed me was this. We used to have this weekly gig here in town um, every Tuesday at this place called the Armadillo Grill, and it was hosted by this band called the Big Fat Gap. And so, uh, you know, we'd go there and play for about three hours with no microphones or anything like that you'd have to play over this like dinner crowd so it was one where you were just thrown song after song after song and you know a lot of the players there were actually really advanced players so you would have to play fast and loud at the same time too <laughs> so doing that every week taught me a bunch of songs you know it had gave me ideas of songs that i needed to go home and learn and be ready for for the next week and yeah it was that was a great teacher that's awesome. That's what I recommend to anybody who's listening, especially like new people when they're, you know, you they want to learn fast. There's no better way to learn than going to a jam and hearing songs that you've never heard before that you like because you want to go. It makes you go home and, you know, find these songs. Yeah. Did you start before? Was it Mandolin Orange? Was that your kind of your first band? Were you focused on the mandolin playing or did you have stuff before that? No, uh, Mandolin Orange was the, uh, you yeah, know, and I started that one. Um, I guess I'd just turned 22 and she was about to turn 22. And so, yeah, we've been doing that for a while. And that was really, 
the first band where I'd ever put down the guitar and actually picked up the mandolin. Mm-hmm. How did the name come up? I'm sure you've been asked this a hundred times. Uh, I had an orange mandolin when we first started playing together, so it <laughs> <Perfect>. made sense. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. What was it? What model was it? Uh, it was just a homemade one that uh, a buddy of mine, Jerry Brown, had made from a Stumac kit. Oh, no kidding. Yep. Oh, that's cool, man. So let's get into, I guess, what we're talking about, gear. I mean, you've you've had some pretty nice mandolins. Let's let's jump into the gear real quick here, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So what was the um what was the first mandolin of like note that you got where you're like, ooh, this is this is, you know, your first real get as a mandolin player? Um kind of every time I've bought a new mandolin, I've I've had that feel. because <laughs> um, they always offer something different, you know, and they always feel different. And uh but I feel like the one that really made me perk up was I got this uh Kimball a style from will Kimball. he had made it for somebody else and ended up not taking it and uh so i took him up on his offer to to get it and that was a great mandolin and especially on the a and e string had this super kind of soft sound you know which i i wasn't used to i was used to the a and e string being a little more harsh and uh on this one it had just a beautiful sustain to it mm-hmm. and yeah, I think it really changed my playing and the way I thought about the mandolin. You know, I could all of a sudden just hit one note and let it ring, and that I'd never had a mandolin that allowed me to play like that. Oh, so, what was the uh, what was next in line after that guy? Um, I guess after that would have been a uh, the Sullivan F that I bought. Um, and actually, miss miss the hell out of that mandolin. A buddy of mine's got that one, and whenever he brings it out to a jam, I'm always. <laughs> He's asking me if I want to play it. I'm like, hell no, I don't want to play it. Put that back in the case. <laughs> um, yeah, John Sullivan, um, I've had two of his mandolins. I had a A-style that actually used to belong to him, and then uh, that S-style. But, yeah, both super toneful, um, very easy to play. Um, it felt like no matter how heavy a string you would put on there, it's felt very loose and slinky without feeling buzzy. You know, that's a... That's a quality in an instrument that I, I think is very important where it just feels like the top is so lively you couldn't kill it if you tried. Right. Yeah, yeah that's nice, man. That's great. What do you uh, what do you string them up with? I just use a J74 Diodaria strings. Nice. Yeah, just go for the middle of the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about picks? Uh, picks? I go back and forth. Mm-hmm. I, I like those weekend 1.0s a lot. Um, oh, yeah. That's a thin pick. Yeah, yeah, cool. I like a thin pick. Yeah, I like it to awesome. have some give. Good, mainly just because I taught myself I I grip the pick a little too hard, and I think uh, that can kill the tone actually. And so uh, I found to kind of balance out the way I hold the pick, a thin pick seems to work better. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you've had you've had like A's and F's. Obviously, we still mm-hmm. haven't gotten to all your mandolins. What do you uh, <laughs> what, what, when do you um. When you're playing for them, is there just something you're listening to? Because you know, some people, you know, they just play a mandolin. Some people are just right. like it's F style. What's how's that work for you? Um, I don't really think about that too much. I I don't consider myself an A or F guy. I just consider myself a, a lover of mandolin tone. You know, <laughs> yeah. I think if you're gonna play an instrument, close your eyes and see if it makes you um, want to buy it and want to play it. Is the thing. Don't worry about whether it's got a scroll or not. Sure. Um, so for me, I'd. I got turned on to the lore sound really early, like um, hanging out with Tony Williamson and
My buddy Jerry Brown's got an old February 18th, 1924. Lord, that is just, that's a, that's an incredible instrument. And so I think once you get turned on to that sound, it's hard to shake it. <laughs> sure. So uh, that's kind of what I've always, you know, wanted out of a mandolin is to have that full tone, you know, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of, a lot of modern players will turn their nose up at the, the lower tone, but I think it's probably because it doesn't have that super low end punch that a lot of modern mandolins have. Sure. Right. But, uh, but to me, that low end punch, if you're not playing in a bluegrass band, is kind of useless because then you're, and even sometimes in a, in a bluegrass band, because it's, you're taking up space with a guitar. So you're sitting by yourself and you're playing this mandolin and it's got this huge sound and it's, you know, really robust and very punchy and very low indie. Yeah. And it sounds great. and It's very inspiring. And then you go to sit in the bluegrass band and all of that stuff that you loved about it is gone. <laughs> right. Just get and sucked the, right you up. Know, yeah. yeah, exactly. The bass is taken over it. The guitar is taken over it. And I think the thing with the lures is they sound the same in an ensemble as they do when you're sitting down by yourself. Oh, nice. They just have this mid range that, that carries through no matter where you put it. So yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And so, yeah, what uh, you you had a Gilchrist before the lore. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If, am I jumping from Sullivan to Gilchrist? Did you have any uh, any other ones in there? Or? No, I went, yeah, Sullivan to the Gilchrist. Nice. And that Gilchrists are beautiful mandolins as well. That guy. So yeah, Steve makes some of the best mandolins I've played, and he's also one of the sweetest people that you're ever likely to meet. A great player too. So. uh if you ever get a chance to pick one with Steve Gilchrist, he'll he'll flip your lid. Yeah, he um he didn't play when I met him. I just met him in um at Carter when I was yep. in Nashville recording an episode with uh, Tristan Scroggins and Jared Walker, and mm-hmm. um they had he just happened to be I uh, probably doing some setup work or taking a look at your newest acquisition, and um he mm-hmm. also had number seven ninety eight. Uh, he's almost at eight hundred building them, and number seven ninety eight was back there, and That's great. Uh, it was just amazing, and actually. He had a uh, arch top that he built for Jerry Garcia there. Um, cool. That somebody he was doing some work on for somebody who bought it and still had like the original strings from Jerry Garcia in the case. That's like, awesome. It was really awesome. I'm like, what is going on today? How did I look yeah, into this day? <laughs> it's fun to talk to him. You know, he's just been in this scene for so long and uh, has been considered, you know, at the top of his game for so long that you know a lot of the people we all look up to and really respect their opinions. Uh, really respect him and really respect his opinion. So you can sit down and talk to him and it's just like, it's all the things you want to hear, you know, like, it's like you're saying, like he built, built a guitar for Jerry Garcia's, you know, yeah. what? I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you <did what? laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. You know, I feel like there's a lot of people that are super inspired by Lloyd Lore mandolins and are just, you know, the music itself. But for Steve, it's all, it's all encompassing, you know? And I think he, he does really respect what Lore was able to accomplish in the twenties, but he's also not afraid to take what he's learned from those instruments and really apply his own thought to it because he's, he's, he's dove into so many parts of the process that he kind of understands all of it. And you watch him work on an instrument and it's, it's nothing like anything I've seen. You know, he's, he's not afraid to just rip something off of there and then like delicately put it right back together and, yeah, he just understands every part of it. And then, so you got another because you're now Joe Walsh, who I had on the podcast, uh, well, 
early on, he has your old Gilchrist. Yeah, number 480 is, is was uh, the serial number of that. Yeah, that I still think about that man one too. That that's <laughs> one of the ones that got away. Um, yeah. A lot of tone from that one, and uh, a lot of sustain as well. It was a beautiful mandolin, kind of kind of perfect for what Emily and I do because it it's a mandolin, so you're able to do like you know all the things that mandolins do. Mm-hmm. But you're also able to do things that mandolins shouldn't do, which <laughs> is kind of sometimes would almost fall into an electric guitar feel, you know. Cause it had the perfect neck angle, the perfect setup job. And it was just so easy to play and so easy to get volume and just effortless tone. So yeah, but I'm glad Joe's got that. And he's definitely the right player for it. His touch is just as beautiful on that instrument. One of the things I love about your playing is you, um, you, you're not afraid of space, which is tough in the mandolin world, I think. And you are great with the tremolo and double stops so I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, how you, uh, your influences led to where you are currently as a player. Um, just playing slow music, you know, <laughs> I think that's one, one reason I play the way I do is because, you know, I think a lot of mandolin players play fast music, you know, or mm-hmm. at least up tempo music. And so, uh, or at least bluegrass players, you know, and, and what we think of in America as mandolin players, so, uh, but yeah, for me, it was always, I was always just playing my original tunes and most of the time when I write, I write kind of slow or mid-tempo tunes. And so it allowed me that space to, uh, you know, to learn how to just use one note in a, uh, you know, per measure. And it was, I don't know, I, I got to where I really liked that idea. The, uh, having the double string there, you could almost treat it like a piano in a lot of ways, depending on how hard you were hitting it or not hitting it mm-hmm. and so um yeah and also i grew up in the household with a lot of piano players my mom my grandma and my sister and so i kind of i think about music through those tones and that timbre and to me when i first came to the mandolin when i would sit down and play it at my house you know very quietly it, it reminded me of that like kind of middle c and up um of how that sounds on the piano and what that would do to the room and due to the your eardrum you know you get those that sweet almost slight distorted feel sometimes when both of those strings would do what they're supposed to be doing so uh so yeah a lot of times i, I kind of play with that and that's what i like to go for live too when i'm uh, talking to our sound guy about you know how the mandolin should sound and you know what he should take out and what he shouldn't take out of it so uh so yeah that was how i first got started playing more you know, using more space and using less notes. But then with the double stops, there were a few reasons for that. Um, like I said, Tony Williamson has been a big influence on me. Um, he has studied so many different styles of music on the mandolin, you know, like Brazilian music, classical music. Um, but I, I'm sure there are other ones, but that's what's coming to mind. But uh, for him, Bill Monroe was definitely the the start. And so he's just got all that stuff um just ingrained in his and his how he thinks about music and how he approaches the mandolin so talking to him about playing those old monroe tunes and and getting him to show me some of those licks definitely opens your eyes up to the fact that monroe was very good at playing within the chords that he was uh, playing around and so he would he would use the entire neck 
just based on the chord that he was on and then where to take it from there. Like if he was going two notes up, Mm -hmm. that would basically be determined by the next double stop. And so uh, thinking about it like that is how I've learned the fretboard and still learning the fretboard. And it's definitely how I, I think about notes, you know, instead of just hitting one note, trying to find, you know, either that competing note that, that makes it sound a little off, but beautiful, or, you know, the just direct harmony to that note, whether it be the, um, you know, the baritone or the tenor to that. And so, yeah, you're almost treating it like a vocal and a harmony, uh, which is also obviously very uh, prominent in modern Emily's music. So, yeah, so there's that. But also Carl Jones. It is someone, someone's last name. Uh, I don't know if you know Carl Jones or not, but he's somebody you should probably get on the podcast too because um, he's played with Norman Blake and uh, has played with so many people. He's a great old-time fiddle player, great guitar player, great songwriter, um, but an amazing mandolin player. And I think he he's one of the people that also showed me the the basically five shapes of the mandolin, you know, and mm-hmm. like and using those shapes, like whichever one you happen to be on, to help you determine where you can go in the scale from there. Um, and he showed me that in like two minutes one day at, at just passing in the studio. And I was like, cool, Carl, thanks for taking so much time, you know, <laughs> but that one lesson literally stuck with me and has uh, been something I've been working on now for, you know, seven, eight years. And it's, it's given me a really strong foundation for how I play the mandolin. So when you say the shapes, double stop shapes. Oh, so okay, gotcha, gotcha. So if you're doing like, uh, let's see, well, present here, but uh, yeah, it's mainly just you know if you find yourself on the the fifth and the third fret, mm-hmm. um, th- you know fifth fret on the A string, third fret on the E string, um, your next G up from there would be the uh, where's that. 10th and 7th? Yes. 10th and 7th? The 10th and the 7th. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, and so learn thinking about it that way, and then from there, going up to the 14th and the 10th. Um, and so, like, moving those shapes that way, and having that be your guide as well. So between that and what Tony's always kind of uh, showed me about some of those Monroe tunes, that's been a big building block for what I for how I think about the mandolin. Do you have a song that you've recorded on one of your mandolin orange albums that you think uh, really captures the essence of what you were going for? With like one in particular that you're just like, yeah, that was, that's what I've been looking for at that point. No, that's why we keep making so many records. Great, man. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. love it. That's um, awesome. Yeah. No, we do most of our stuff live too, though. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's never, I'm never just sitting down and like really working on a solo on a record. I kind of just, it ends up coming out how it just comes out and then is what it is for eternity. Do you stick close when you play live to the recorded versions or do you kind of just map it out and go for it? 
Yeah, we usually start there. Um, I mean, when I go to when it comes time to take a solo, the the solo sections are always open. Um, so anybody who's playing with us, or if it's just a duo, um, you know, if it's Emily on the fiddle or if it's me on the mandolin, we use those solo sections as a time to improvise. We don't try to redo anything that we've recorded. You know? Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and sometimes, you know, you just can't help if after you've heard the recording, it's like you know, it all starts with your ear and how you think about music. So it's a lot of what came out naturally is going to come out pretty similarly, you know, live, but, but yeah, never trying to like go back and relearn solos that I played. Uh, your albums, your, the production on your albums and the mandolin sound, what's your, what's your studio approach as far as miking? Do you have like a mics that you love to use and placement? Um, I do have mics that I like to use. I really like those, uh, those Neumann KMI 84s. Yeah. Um, they're great microphones. They don't have a, any, they don't have any boosts anywhere or cuts anywhere. They're just a flat microphone. Um, and it's 20 Hertz to 20,000 Hertz. So, uh, meaning there's no, there, it's not shaving any low end off within the circuitry. It's like, it's presenting the entire, um, you know, audible, um spectrum that yeah. humans can hear and i think that's important especially with the mandolin because there's so many tones that contribute to how you feel when you listen to an acoustic instrument mm-hmm. and i think when you start carving too many of those things out of it to make them fit in a recording you're taking away the ability for it to just truly move you you know i sure. mean those are like some of those some of those lower frequencies a lot of people would say well the g only goes down to like 200 hertz it's like well that's true but there's a lot of stuff happening in the resonant part of the the body that is happening way below 200 hertz and that's the stuff that um i don't know makes you makes you feel more than makes you hear anything you know and i think it's important to keep that in there um i think it's important not to compress things too much you know one of the best things about the mandolin is the amount of dynamics you can get out of it. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so if you squash that, you're you're losing just again your emotional response of the instrument and and what that does to the air around it. So yeah, I, I just like to keep as much air and as possible, you know. And sometimes it makes it a little, you know, muddy on some on some speakers, but I think the yeah the emotional aspect of it is still still present where it's it's moving as much air as possible if that makes any sense yeah it totally (laughs) makes sense man i mean i think people forget about all those things that it's like the uh the things that move you that you don't really realize but they're there yeah you know you're just not really paying any attention to them you know it's almost like let's say subliminal but it's you know just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there well it's all frequency you know and i think uh frequency is a big part of music it's not you know i mean it's basically how it's moving the air you know and so if if it happens to be a subsonic frequency that you're not hearing but it's still moving the air and like i don't know making your hair do weird shit you know whatever it is it's like it's effective and yeah i like to keep as much much of that as possible yeah that's great man i would say like listen to a recording that has like a finger snap in it or something bizarre that you don't really notice yeah. but you see it's there and then just if you were to take that out it would change everything about the way you listen to that song you'd be like something's missing yeah exactly so let's talk a little bit about buried in a cape 
did you record mm-hmm. that album? Uh, we did that at the the butcher shop in Nashville, Tennessee, with uh, Sean Sullivan engineered that. And I I think he he's one of those people that just understands how to record acoustic music, you know. So, and yeah, it allowed us to just go into the the room. We just all sat in a circle, no headphones, and just played it all live. Wow, it it feels that way. That was one of my questions. But did you record it live? Because it absolutely feels like a session uh, that you would yeah. walk into somewhere and. You know, any cool bar, pub somewhere in the world, you'd walk in, and that—that's the vibe that that album has. Yeah, I was I was really happy with the way it all turned out. You know, I mean, one of the reasons it feels that way is because you know it's Clint Mulligan on bass. He's one of my favorite stand-up bass players. He also plays with Emily Knight, Adlin Orange, mm-hmm. and uh, and let's see, Christian Settlemeyer on fiddle. Um, to me, one of the more expressive fiddle players out there. Um, and the beautiful use of double stops as well. So anytime we get together, it ends up being this big mashup of uh, <laughs> double stops. You know, it's like <laughs> these huge chords coming out of just two instruments. Um, and then Eli West is a very expressive guitar player, great tone, um, a super unique attack on the string, and he he does so without hitting it very hard it's just his pick angle that he's able to do it's a very efficient use of um pick angle that to me drives the hell out of that band you know um and so yeah we they they learned all those tunes that i'd written and we got to nashville recorded the whole thing in two days and then mixed it on the third day wow (laughs) that's awesome yeah. Did you have like a um, did you have a like an inspiration behind that album? Was there something that you were kind of going for, or an album or two that maybe was in your head as you were going in to record that? Um, yeah, there were two in particular. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the songs were written, you know, over the course of a few years. But one of my like, you know, if, if people have a default mode, one of my like constant, if I'm feeling like I'm need to be regrounded, I'll go back to that album. Wild Hog and a Red Brush by John Hartford. Yeah, so all those tunes are just so solid, and the way they play on that band is, I think, one of the grooviest string bands out there. And, uh, you know, Compton, obviously that's where I heard about Mike Compton and really latched on to what he was doing. And he doesn't take too many solos on that record, but to me, his rhythm playing on that and how he is able to almost... I don't know, like he almost like accents the groove of the fiddle melody without playing the melody. Yeah, and it, I love it. So, anyways, that that's something that I've always tried to achieve. Um, just not near as well as my confidence in my <laughs> mandolin playing. Maybe by the time I'm, you know, fifty, I'll be able to do it. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. So a lot of those tunes were were written with that album in mind, but. I think with a lot of the playing that came out, I was listening to, I was going back and listening to Drive again by Bela Fleck. 
Um, and I love just the feel of that album. Those are probably two of my favorite instrumental records. So I think it was kind of a mashup as far as how I was thinking and where I was between those two albums. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I go back and listen to it, I'm very pleased with how everybody played and how, you know, just just the feel of the album itself. You know, some I would definitely go back and redo some of my solos. But oh man, um, I don't know if I could. But I but it, I think the feel is there and the 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 energy is there. It's like that sonic thing you were talking about. Everything about it just melds together. You know, yeah. the, the, the the performance, that's the important part. But you go back and listen to it, I think for me, because the songs are great, you know, and that's that's the most important part. And I think you nailed it, man. Thanks. Yeah. Man, you're going gonna to give me a lot of confidence going forward. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, dude, you I mean, you you're it inspires me to pick up the mandolin. I don't know if we were recording this or not, but the tone on that, I was saying like when I was a kid and I would hear I played drums and I would. I would hear John Bonham playing. I couldn't wait to run home and play drums because it just felt and sounded great. And your that your album, it's the same way. If it comes on and I'm driving and it's a long drive, I'm like, oh man, I almost feel like I need to have somebody else drive so I can play. <laughs> so, cool. so yeah, good stuff. Which uh, what was the oldest song on that? What was the the first one of those tunes that you had written? Um, I think uh, the one where it's just Eli playing Claudio Banjo and Neil Mandolin. It's called Redwood. time and uh that was like probably seven years ago and then i went for a long time without writing any instrumentals um but yeah i dug that one back up for that album and it, i love the way it came together with just the banjo and the mandolin mm-hmm. it sounds great there's a there's a bunch of them on there though that uh that blow my mind under the mulberry tree <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, is, is there a Grisman album or a Grisman track that you uh, that you really love? Um, yeah, a bunch of them. But uh, one in particular, I think, was my introduction to Grisman was that Hot Dog album. Mm-hmm. Um, and the song Sixteen Sixteen. Oh yeah, blows my mind, man. Like uh, especially Stefan Grappelli's tone on that, and it just sounds like tears to me. Um, I think that's probably my favorite tune on that record, but also, uh, I love how 
on one of Grisman's solos, he does this da 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 like he does this um, on a very not quite pentatonic. I think it's more like a major seven kind of drop mm-hmm. on this on that song, but it's over a minor tune, you know. So it's it uh it just sounds beautiful. But he also at the same time they you can tell they just reached over and just turned the reverb up ever so slightly as he was dropping. And it's this very cosmic moment that made me like click and it was like, sweet, you can still use reverb on a lot of it in yeah, <laughs> yeah. string band music, you know? And right. I think, I think some people don't do that because it, it takes you out of the, uh, you know, whatever error you're trying to accomplish by playing this music. But I think, you know, allowing, allowing this music to be as cosmic as it wants to be sometimes is a, is a beautiful thing. And so I told Sean that about that moment on that record and he was explaining to me how I guess the butcher shop bought some of the original plate reverbs from the Ryman. Oh wow. And so they've got these huge plates um there that just sound incredible. I mean they sound like you know, like no no program, no computer program ever mimicked a plate reverb the way these real plates actually sound. And so when he started turning those up, everybody in the band was just like, dude, yes, <laughs> please put that on there. And so, uh, yeah, we, there's a lot of that on, on Beardy and Cave too. You know, we're just yeah. using that, using that reverb to, I don't know, just take you, take you out of, you know, this normal zone that acoustic music often kind of sits in. There's maybe, I'm not as rooted in the tradition of it just because I'm a songwriter first. And so mm. I, I think in those terms, you know, I think about what serves the tune, not sure. necessarily what serves a tradition or, you know, even the instrument, you know? Right, right. Yeah, that, that's uh, a question I had was, you know, when you're writing for Mandolin Orange, obviously you're an incredible guitar player and incredible mandolin player, but there's some songs I don't have any mandolin playing on it. And, you know, I'm a, is it just whatever serves a song for you and, in that time yeah there's some songs when i write them especially lyrical tunes that um i just become so attached to the guitar part around those those lyrics that i uh i just kind of don't want to play the mandolin on it you know because it's a a different approach and it i uh it's like using two parts of my brain you know (laughs) and so uh, (laughs) right right i just want to keep one turned off so i can really enjoy this one part of my brain um so yeah i think for you know for songwriting it's it's not necessarily a mandolin thing even though the band is mandolin orange it's uh it's like you said it's it's what the tune calls for and also a lot of times because we're just a duo um if emily's playing guitar you know if i'm playing mandolin emily's playing guitar and there's some tunes that to me just really need fiddle and really call for fiddle so that's when i'm always happy to pick up the guitar because i think she's got a such a, a lyrical style about her on the fiddle. Not not flashy, not uh not showy at all. It's just very melodic and very toneful. And you know, back to my use of double stops, you know, her playing has been a big influence on my playing just because when I was first playing the mandolin, 
she had already been playing the fiddle since she was seven. Wow. Um, so she was very rooted and had a lot of knowledge and a lot of, uh, experience playing solos over, you know, all kinds of music. And so when I would take her these tunes, she would just, her first approach or her first inclination on these songs would be so beautiful. that would blow my mind, you know? So it took a long time for me to get, feel confident enough to have her set down the fiddle and pick up the guitar and let me play the mandolin, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, that was a big influence for me. Man, I, I love on your Tiny Desk concert how you just hand her the guitar that you just played and you guys just share that to me. Something about that, just I'm just like, that is so awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? That You know, there's not like 50 instruments out there. You're just like, here, we have these amazing songs. Here's this guitar. You, We're, we're going to go to the next amazing song now. And it's so cool. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, man. <laughs> that's that's like, something we think about. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet not. And that's what's that's what's awesome about it. It's just it's just like um, it's so natural. You know what I mean? It's like it feels like you would see that at any session anywhere. So, how did you guys meet? Uh, we actually we met at this jam. I think I was telling you before we started the podcast. Um, we the Big Fat Gap, which is the local bluegrass band here for like twenty years in Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a a weekly bluegrass jam at the Armadillo Grill um, every Tuesday, and so uh, actually on Obama's inauguration day, 2009, it had snowed, which is supposed to be a good omen, and uh, <laughs> and she had school off, so she came out to the jam, and she as soon as she walked up the stairs, she had her fiddle on her back, and she was all excited because she was going to play some bluegrass music, and she hadn't been to this jam in a while, and I'd I'd never seen her there. I'd been going for probably a year and a half at this point and yeah so we sat beside each other and got to talking i wanted to know more about her and we knew all these carter family teams you know we um for me that was one of my introductions to bluegrass music was pretty much every time i heard a song that made me want to learn it was always a carter family team So I'd, I'd picked up a good bit of repertoire from them and Emily, obviously, who's been playing this music for since she was, um, you know, probably before she ever had Susan for the first time. Um, <laughs> as like was very familiar with all of them, so she would, you know, play the melodies on the fiddle and she would, you know, sing these harmonies with me, and it just just felt so natural, like she and I playing together for the first time, even then that uh, I'd already booked some solo gigs at that point. As I was just playing as a solo artist, and I asked her to come out and play some shows with me. And it, it and that's kind of just how we got started. She started learning some more of my tunes, and we would go play four-hour bar gigs and play a few of my tunes, but a lot of traditional tunes. And you know, then from there, people would ask us to come play their weddings, and we'd go play weddings and. You know, just a lot of a lot of background gigs for us in the beginning, but that allowed us to do a lot of practicing and try a lot of things that maybe we wouldn't have done if we were, you know, thrown into this spotlight situation early on. Yeah. Wow, that's great, man. What a 
what a fortuitous fortuitous meeting yeah i know it i had no idea that that was gonna shape the next 11 years of my life <laughs> right well man thank goodness huh <laughs> yeah um it, it, you mentioned a little earlier on that you played a little metal who was who are your metal bands uh definitely pantera was a big influence for me don uh-huh. bag is i think still one of the greatest guitarists or electric guitarists to ever live um and not just heavy metal too he he was just so well versed in music he was a great musician yeah um groovy uh, riffs like big just like huge groove. oh man yeah <laughs> and i would you know we like me and my buddy hillman would read as much as we could about like how did he get that tone you know like did he <laughs> yeah. just track it and like five times or what you know but but yeah i think that was it he was just a very in tune musician you know he could um he would just get into the groove in a way where it wasn't always on top of the beat or it wasn't always, you know, behind it or in front of it. It's just exactly where he put it is mm-hmm. exactly where we all wanted to hear it and feel it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hard to, hard to emulate. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, especially with a mandolin. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. But yeah, Metallica also, um, you know, early Metallica, Rather Lightning, Master of Puppets. Um, those two albums were big influences earlier on i think that uh learning a lot of their songs helped me understand structure a little more Mm -hmm. um because they're a little robotic but in a way where like once you see it it kind of makes sense structurally it's like looking at a at a diagram almost you know and it's like oh okay this makes total sense like and so then when i went to bluegrass and and the structures were a little more uh, simple but again laid out in a way where it just made sense uh, was how things started clicking in place for me. Um, yeah, I'm always yeah. Inter- I'm always interested in like the different types of styles of bluegrass as well that shape people because you know all that stuff falls into the falls into the mix of what makes you a musician, and uh, mm-hmm. and that's awesome to hear that sort of thing. You know, and that's that's so cool. And I would have never guessed metal just because your songs are so uh, well. Well, maybe though, maybe so. Like, they are kind of like you said, a little dark sometimes, and uh, <laughs> you know that that's uh. That's great. I, I, what's it like? I got to ask you this because this song was the one song that seems like everybody, when it came out, was like, have you heard Wildfire? to write that did you know right away that it was like wow this is uh this is something special um i i didn't know that actually I, so when i wrote it, it 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 was one of those songs that i didn't toil over very much it just like came out very fast and i wrote it after having some pretty intense conversations with some old high school buddies of mine about race in the south and then and what that meant and you know and, and just things that I don't think anybody had ever really brought up with them, you know? Um, and it, it made me want to go home and write a song about it. Um, 
And when I did, when I sat down to write it, I found very quickly that it, uh, it, it wanted to be written. So, um, yeah, that was just one of those, I had no idea that it was going to be the song that it is now for a lot of people, but, um, we're always happy to play it every night. And this, it seems like more and more people are cheering where they should and not cheering where they should. Sure. Um, or not, not cheering where they shouldn't, I guess is what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. And folks are really understanding the, you know, the, the meaning behind it. And that, that's a good feeling. Anytime you write a song. Yeah. Oh, congratulations, man. That's a, you know, that's a, that's, I mean, you have so many great songs, but it's great to see like a, the recognition and, and, you know, to, to see like, you know, when you look at it on Spotify or whatever, like millions of listens, <laughs> you're like, good. That's great. You know? Well, thanks. I appreciate you taking interest. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, um, you obviously spend, spend a lot of time playing mandolin. And one of the questions that I ask on this podcast a lot, that seems to be one of the most popular questions is if you had 10 minutes a day to pick up your mandolin, what's something that you would work on or you would recommend somebody to work on that they could just do if they don't, you know, if they got like a 10 hour job, but they should just, you know, pick up the mandolin for a few minutes and work on something. Um, uh, the way I've always learned the mandolin is just by learning songs that are just, you know, like difficult tunes that wouldn't necessarily be my go-to. Mm-hmm. And one of those songs for me is Homer the Romer. John Hartford um, yeah. that find a version of that and learn it and it it's a great great song for for you know practicing with your pick you know m- moving doing the whole up and down motion and also like string switching um, it's difficult on the le- left hand but not so difficult that it's impossible mm-hmm. it just has some fingerings that uh, are a little tricky and we'll loosen up your left hand a little bit. So, and I think it's a four part tune too. So it also tests your, your mind a little bit to remember <laughs> all these parts and where they go. So yeah. how do you learn tunes when you learn, when you're working on new tunes, like, uh, you know, like something like that, how do you approach it? Um, I don't listen to it a lot. You know, I try to make sure I can almost sing the melody. And I feel like that makes it a little easier to, remember my place and remember where it needs to go mm-hmm. um, from each note. So yeah, just, you know, don't forget to use your ears is, is the main, main thing I would say to anybody who's picking up an instrument. Right. Right. That's awesome. One other thing I really noticed about watching some of your live playing is you, um, when you do your tremolo, you uh, go over the neck of the mandolin. I mean, your right hand mm-hmm. moves significantly. Um, is that something that you just figured out by ears? Is that something that you, you know, like learned in lessons or. So, yeah, so the one reason I play tremolo like that is kind of a when I was first learning how to play tremolo, I, it was very difficult, and I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, but I, I found that if I rest if I rest my pick on the fretboard, 
that uh, I don't have to focus as much on going through the stream and having a guide for that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's why I do that. I rest my pick actually on the fretboard when I do my tremolo. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So I'm actually like, I'm scraping the fingerboard when I do that, but it, but also going up the fingerboard like that, it uh, it makes a very smooth tremolo. It's, it's not a very percussive tremolo. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's really even and really smooth. And, and once you get used to doing that, you don't hear it hitting the pit guard. I mean, hitting the uh, fretboard anymore either. So. Mm. And if you had, since you don't, you, you you're not a drinker, so we're going to eliminate the the beer portion of this. But what I like to ask when there's not a beer to talk about is if you were to pick up your fiddle or your fiddle, your mandolin, what fiddle, mm. what fiddle tune would you play today? Like, just which do you have a favorite one that you've been working on? Because you say you yeah. say you know you say you're like a slow player, but there's some YouTube videos of you out there, man, where you're playing uh, with a uh, Mike from Steep Canyon Rangers and. Um, Oh man, there's another dude that you do uh, big. I'm gonna say it wrong. Big Skiota or Big Skiota. Not sure. Yeah. Uh, but you uh, do that too, and those are pretty pretty up tempo, and you are crushing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know, like any mandolinist, I, I want to make sure I can still play fast, <laughs> just because you get asked to play fast, and I, uh, you know, I think one of the things I always try to focus on is is uh is just being able to play fast and not having to struggle through that, mm-hmm. you know, still remaining relaxed. And to me, working with a metronome is one of the ways that has helped me do that. Um, but I think Monroe's Hornpipe is one of the ones that I go to a lot because uh, that's another one where it's not an easy tune. You know, it's it, it's a very approachable, very, very simple melody. But playing that song, you have to use all four strings on the mandolin. And uh, it's this uh, ascending line that, is a great thing to practice because you have to work on your, you have to work from going a downstroke on one string and then an upstroke on the string above it. And doing that and accomplishing going through both strings with a full tone and attack is, I think, something that people of any level should always work on and remain familiar with because that's where attention usually happens for me. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. So, yeah, Monroe's Hornpipe is one of those ones that I just, when I'm warming up, you know, before a gig or when I first sit down to pick up the mandolin, that's one that I always go for. Oh, I love that song. That's great, man. And do you have like, a, have you had like a mandolin moment yet? Obviously, you've probably gotten to meet a ton of these these amazing players. Have you had like a jam session or a or a moment for you or in, your, in the mandolin world, aside from obviously owning a lore, which you should, you know, <laughs> we should talk about. I know we mentioned Tony Williamson. Let's, I, I, I probably skipped over this, but how did you acquire that lore so you know we talked about all the mandolins that i've owned yeah uh, basically one of my uh goals in life was to own a lore and so i basically as we were playing gigs was just putting away money and just trying to save up to buy a nicer and nicer mandolin and mm-hmm. eventually got to the point where i was holding on to like four mandolins like really <laughs> nice mandolins and uh and so this lure that I've got now came up and Tony gave me a call and he was like, man, if you're ever going to buy one, this is not only a great one, but it's, you know, I think you should go for this one. So I was able to sell those four mandolins and, you know, borrow some money and, and get it. So great. So, uh, yeah. Which worked out for me because I'm like, you know, as you probably can tell by this podcast, I'm very detail oriented in a lot of ways. <laughs> and so I would worry about, 
which mandolin I should play based on the room that I was playing in, you know, yeah. and uh, like the tonal qualities that the mandolin had versus what it was doing to there in the room. And so, uh, uh, no longer have that. Now I can just pick up my mandolin and, and just play it in every room. And it, it seems to do the, do the thing I want all of them to do. Yeah. And I can, and then, and then that new Gilchrist too, or the newer, again, the 80, is it, you say 84? Is that what you said? Yeah. 84 X brace European spruce top. Yeah. How in the heck do you, uh, just decide, I mean, obviously with the lore, but man, those are two incredible mandolins. <laughs> yeah. I've actually, I've got an 83 nugget, nugget a as oh, well. Do you so. really? Oh, yeah, buddy of mine, uh, Danny Gotham, I'd wanted this instrument for like 10 years and I went to sell it when I got the lure. And then that was one that I was like, you know, I'm going to hold on to that one because it's been very present throughout my mandolin life so far. And so, uh, yeah, I held on to that one and, uh, you know, those three, I mean, the lure is definitely, it's just got it all, you yeah. know, but the, the nug and the gill have their places and, uh, you know, I'm, very fortunate to own those three mandolins. Well, man, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're super busy. You're getting ready to leave on tour. Um, I, I just wish you all the success. Are you, is there going to be a second? Is there going to be a second album? A second instrumental album? Yeah, there's already uh, the the wheels are in motion and a lot of tunes. I've got a. I think I've got sitting on twenty or so songs right now that uh, I need to weed weed through. But uh, but yeah, don't I. I I don't know when that's going to happen, but my hope is to record it sometime this year. Oh, great. Great. Well, that's excellent. Well, I'm going to shoot down and see you guys in Savannah um, when you guys are hmm. down there on April 1st. So I can't wait to see you all live, man. That'll be yeah, exciting. Yeah, sweet. That's, uh, that's for the festival down there, right? Yeah, yeah, the Savannah Music Festival, Folk Festival. But... I think it's Folk Festival, yeah. but... So uh, we'll find out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I've heard great things about the festival though. And a lot of my friends have played it and always look forward to it. So yeah, a lot of cool. Um, I think Dominic Leslie is going to be down there with Hocktail and Mike Marshall and Sharon Gilchrist are going to be down there with, I think a mandolin orchestra. Um, Whoa, so it's cool. going to be a lot of, a lot of great mandolin stuff going on. It, well, Hey, safe travels. And thank you so much for doing the podcast. Yeah. I'm glad to be on it. I appreciate you doing it. Absolutely. Thank you, man. Yep. All right. Thank you to Andrew Marlin for doing the podcast. Thank you for listening. I will have on my Patreon page this week those five double-stop shapes that he was talking about on there and how to get to them. Um, so you go to Patreon, go to mandolinsofbeer.com to get merch. Go to the Spotify playlist to hear the songs in full that were played on this episode. You guys have yourself a great week. Next week, Andrew Collins, the Canadian mandolin player that is. Just, he's, he's incredible. Be sure to uh, check his stuff out before next week if you aren't familiar with him. Thanks, y'all. Cheers.